<laughs> we work so hard to get stronger, happier, more productive and successful. Don't forget the secret ingredient. Get grounded in play. Play grounding when it's time to get a life. Hello and welcome to the Playgrounding Podcast. This is Kara Stewart-Fortier coming to you again from the Treehouse here at Theory Labs at the Brewery Artist Colony in LA. Today, I'm going to introduce you to a woman who tells an inspiring story about how a playful approach, even when it comes to dealing with the worst disasters, can lead to better innovations, better cooperation, and even transformation in the lives of the people affected by these disasters. Um, in this interview, she will be sharing how a robot petting zoo helped unaccompanied minors stranded in Texas border towns during the youth border crisis in 2013 to 2015. She'll also talk about her team's fascinating uses for drones and about a town in Canada that is gamifying emergency prep and their role in that. And I mean, actually gamifying. It's a game that the people of the town are participating in, and it sounds like a lot of fun. Um, her name is Desiree Mattel Anderson, and that's Desi to you because she likes you. Um, she is the chief wrangler of the not-for-profit organization Field Innovation Team and CEO of the Global Disaster Innovation Group. She is the first and former chief innovation advisor at FEMA and Think Tank Strategic Vision Coordinator. During her tenure at FEMA, she led the first innovation team down to Hurricane Sandy to provide real-time problem-solving in disaster response and recovery. The field innovation team has deployed on several disasters, including the Boston Marathon bombings, the Moore, Oklahoma tornadoes, the, Philip the Philippines Typhoon Haiyan, and the Oso Washington mudslides. During the Nepal earthquakes, she led the team to work with Nepali women leaders in the earthquake relief efforts, which included rebuild, mobilizing survivors to assist in recovering efforts, and empowerment trainings. And currently, her efforts are focused on the Syrian refugee crisis with the team deployed to Beirut, Lebanon, and virtual support in Turkey and Syria. Wait till you meet this woman. Here's Desi. Thank you so much for joining me today, Desi. This is amazing. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Kara. <laughs> sure. So, so tell me a little bit about your work, what you do. It's it's just overwhelmingly fascinating to me what you do. Yes, uh, the work um, I do is in disasters. Um, I I don't love seeing people get into disasters, but I do love creatively problem solving in challenges and catastrophes. So basically. Um, I'm the chief wrangler of a group called the Field Innovation Team, mm -hmm. and we deploy in real time into major catastrophic incidents, and we work with governments and other partners to solve and save lives. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's that's really amazing. And so since this is a podcast on play, I'm just, you know, we're definitely going to be getting into that. But before that, I kind of wanted you to give us some examples of some of the work that you do. So the, what does it mean to innovate um, into these kinds of areas? like like you do 
Yeah, yeah, we use a three-step framework. Uh, we call it the three-step prep, mm -hmm. which I'm happy to talk about. But basically, um, what that does is it guides our decision-making and what we end up doing. And so we've done things like flown drones and mudslides in the Oso Washington mudslides in 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, we went to the U.S.-Mexico border, worked with Latin American youth, uh, Guatemalan, Honduran, and El Salvadorian. Wow. To actually, yeah, it was super fun. We put on this giant robotics petting zoo. Um, <laughs> we also just <laughs> recently went to uh to lebanon into the middle east to work on artificial intelligent uh chatbots mm. uh with partners to give mental health resources to syrian refugees so basically what it all comes down to is we use this three-step prep in order to guide our decision and then we get to do this fun stuff in the field wow that's awesome um so how did you guys come to um what, how did this all begin? Can you give me a little bit of the background on that? Actually, um, I, I tell the story intermittently, but it really began um, back when I was um, going to school. I was in Illinois going to school, um, getting my law degree, and we had an active shooter on campus. Um, I, yeah, it was a very scary situation on Valentine's Day. Mm. And um, I didn't actually know how to handle, um, how to respond, how to help other people, how to help myself. And um, I felt a bit of responsibility as, as a student, but also because I was working for the university to be able to think smart on my feet when an emergency happens. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of guided me into emergency management, which then flowed into creating this field innovation team, wow. which ended up deploying with FEMA, uh, deploying with a bunch of the United Nations, you name it. So now we just go around the world deploying in disasters. But, um, but the idea really is to empower humans to create cutting edge disaster solutions so they never feel the way that I did in that law library on Valentine's Day. Wow. And so in a situation like that, if you're if there's a shooting or something like that, what would be an innovative solution? Each situation is so yeah. different. Um, so certainly we can go through the three step. Sure, prep yeah. and we probably find some pretty valuable uh, pieces on that, but it would definitely depend on the situation. So maybe I can. Do you mind if oh, I go please. into those three Absolutely. steps? Absolutely. So I actually use it in my day-to-day -day, um, beyond just using it in disasters because I do believe it gets you narrowed in and focused into the optimal way of, of moving forward in your life. And instead of taking two steps back, you're taking three steps exactly. forward. But, um, but the three steps are pretty simple. The, the first is we look at the situation. So we, um, we try to get as much situational awareness of what's going on. If it's an event like an active shooter or the Boston Marathon bombings where we did um, we did respond to, or it could be something like a hurricane or a flood or a tornado, um, we get as much in the situation as we can. We need to know as many facts, what's, what's the casualties, what's the injuries, what's going on, just anything we can get our hands on. Um, that's the first mm -hmm. step. What is happening? What's the situational yes. awareness? Um, then in the second step, we basically go into the who and the why. We look at who are we solving mm -hmm. for? Are we solving for the survivors, responders, ourselves, mm -hmm. somebody else in Calgary. We were solving for the Calgary Zoo, the animals, oh. <laughs> uh, to evacuate uh, after they had some floods in 2013. So we got to decide who we're solving mm -hmm. for. Um, and then why? Why are we solving for them? Um, if you don't know why you're doing it, then you're never going to get to a focused mm -hmm. solution. So when you get that second step of the who mm -hmm. and the why, we then go to our third step. And these, these are so... Um, I feel like they're basic building blocks, but I never did this in my life up until that after that mm -hmm. active shooter. Um, that last step is how. So how are we going to do it? We'll come up with a ton of solutions, a lot of a lot of fun, a lot of imagination. 
And then we narrow in on one solution and we implement it. Wow. And can you give an example of one maybe recent or something you think would be a, I don't know, just something we could relate to in a real life situation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, you were talking about play and, and games and, and fun. Um, after that flooding happened in Alberta, Canada, there was there's a town called the Town of High River. Um, it's actually where these tall cottonwood trees grow, and it's got a beautiful flowing river, gorgeous community, um, full of friendly Canadians. Uh, that flood really struck and devastated the mm -hmm. community. Um, and, and really, they got, I think they got like 13 inches of rain wow. in 48 hours. A lot. Yes, yes. So basically, these communities underwater, um, they get back on their feet. Uh, recovery is mm -hmm. slow. Flooding just takes a long time. Ends up being one of the most expensive disasters in oh Canadian history. Um, yeah, really, really sad. But we um, we worked with the community and they were very resilient. And they said, we're going to come back from this and we're going to mm -hmm. come back stronger. So we used this three-step design process. We looked at uh, the first thing is what what are we solving for? We're solving for future flooding in Cal or in, in town of High River, Canada, Alberta. We want to make sure that people in future floods, future disaster, that they know what to do and they know how to coordinate each other uh, mm -hmm. and volunteers. In the second step, we look at the who and the why. So who we're solving for survivors. We want community members to be empowered to be able to coordinate and to give themselves a base to be able to respond mm -hmm. to a future flood. Why are we doing it? We want to be resilient. You know, we're mm -hmm. a good community. And then in that final step, we came up with a ton of solutions, but just recently we actually gamified our final solution. Ooh. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, games yeah. are fun, right? So basically we, uh, we came up with a technology platform with a group called Rally Engine, and they are using that technology platform in their day-to-day -day events in the town but it then flips in an emergency into a crisis app that everybody can use. And so basically we put the, the technology to test in a recent trip to the town, mm -hmm. which was this fall. And basically the mayor got in on this game and the whole idea of what we had all of the townspeople doing was they were using the clues on the technology platform to go wow. find the mayor. And it was a way of, yeah, so the mayor was hiding in the town. He's actually hiding in the shack in, in the park. <laughs> but then they went in to try and find him and use the technology. So that's an example of using the three-step uh, actually for disaster preparedness. Wow, that is, that's really exciting. <laughs> I, I've heard about when I was doing a little bit of research on you, I was like, just saw a video of uh, South by Southwest, things like that. There was, there are drones that you send in that do 3D printing. Um, there are drones that, you know, go in and talk to people in the middle of disaster situations. Um, I know drones are kind of on everyone's mind these days. I mean, how, how has the use of drones been uh, changing the game? Yeah, definitely robotics in general has been a huge area in emergency disaster response, but also just in our day-to-day our -day mm -hmm. lives of automation, right? Yeah. Uh, and we have used drones uh, with some Texas partners who came up to Oso, Washington after a, a couple of mudslides. Mm. Um, and again, we used that three-step prep, and it came down to utilizing the drones to fly them across this mudslide that had struck the town of Oso. Mm. That data from the drones was then used along with LiDAR data to create these 3D scan topography maps. And then those topography maps became 3D printed 
the incident command took that and then staged their search and rescue teams using those maps. Um, so drones are a huge, huge area that we we definitely believe in. And and to be honest with you, having that um, unmanned mm-hmm. vehicle really does help to expedite the mm-hmm. response. But um, but you did refer to uh, Austin, Texas, mm-hmm. with South by and the robotics petting zoo, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and um, I'm happy to share how that came about if you'd like. Absolutely, please. <laughs> So the uh, the robotics petting zoo actually started out of again using our our three step framework. Um, we were in the U.S. Mexico border crisis. Um, do you know what's going on with youth in the border, or do you want me to give you a quick background? Actually, big quick background cool. would be great. So so the background basically is it's a lot of youth from Latin America, from Honduras, Guatemala, El El Salvador. They've been coming through Latin America, out through Central America, up. In, from Mexico into the United States. Um, a lot of them are entering through Texas. Uh, some are coming into Florida, California, you name it all. And they're then mm-hmm. fingering up into the States, but they have, they yeah. don't have their parents. I mean, these are kids from the ages of like five to 17. Yes. Super, wow. oh super young, gosh. super resilient. Um, the story I would hear is a lot of people were riding the, the trains. They call them the Bastilla mm-hmm. for beast. And basically, mm-hmm. they would uh, line up on the top of the rooftops of the trains um, and just ride them in into the United States. Um, so anyway, so we have all these kids. Yeah, wow. Texas had a ton of children, and they didn't. A lot of the NGOs and the organizations weren't sure how to work with them because some of the kids had been through some pretty violent scenarios. Other kids mm-hmm. had um, other kids were actually uh, being violent and, and were parts of gangs um, and still other wow. kids were being trafficked. And so that's that's a whole nother area. Um, and so basically from our work was in 2014, 2015, but we saw a huge surge in 2013 and 2014 of kids. I mean, we're talking thirty nine thousand children came over the border in 2013, according to Customs and Border. Wow. Oh my yes. God. And then in 2014, 69,000. So that's, that's almost double what that is double what we saw mm-hmm. the year before. So needless to say, um, there's all these kids. It's Texas. It's the middle of summer. It's hot. It's like 90 mm-hmm. degrees. Have you been in Texas when it's? Yes. <laughs> brutal. It is brutal. And humid. <laughs> it is humid. You could, I mean, we could have fried eggs on, on the sidewalk. It was like that, Ugh. that hot. So, um, oh so yeah, we had to figure out a way to, to build trust um, and implement tr- like education programs for these kids and something that they're actually interested in to keep the peace, but also to make sure they got the resources they needed. So, um, so we, we, again, we used the three-step prep and basically, and the first thing we looked at was what are we solving for? We're solving mm-hmm. for youth in the border crisis, this border crisis. Uh, step two, who would why? Again, solving for Latin American youth from the ages of from literally from five to 17. And why are we doing this? We're doing this because we want the next generation of youth to be strong in in technology. We want mm-hmm. them to build on the capacities that we're building on right now, because mm-hmm. someday I'm, I'm not going to be going out in the disasters. I'm going to have my cane and I'm going to be saying, <laughs> hey, what's the next robot? Tell me the latest. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so basically, um, we, we then had to figure out how. So how are we going to solve this? And we looked at, um, the, we thought of a lot of different solutions 
And one of the solutions that we came up with was this robotics petting zoo, which mm. everybody thought was mildly insane because who brings a robotics petting zoo with a bunch of robots into the fields of Texas uh, to work with unaccompanied minors? Um, but we do because we're the field innovation team. So <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so yeah, so basically if you can picture uh, rolling fields of, of grains, uh, 90 degree weather, uh, fry an egg on the sidewalk, um, and then you have all of these robotic people, these people who've created these robots from blue furry uh, robots that were used originally for autism um, mm -hmm. to drones and flying robots to ones that crawled in solar powered, very green technology robots. Oh, we basically goodness. put them out in the field and kids got to just have a field day where they got to rip apart robots, put them back together, oh, figure man. out how to program like it honestly, like it was, it was one of those memories in in recent history that um, I hope I never forget. Oh my goodness! I hope you have. Do you have any pictures you can share with us for this or video or? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have. We couldn't. Um, we couldn't take video of any of the the faces because we wanted to keep um Tough some of these enough. kids. Uh, quiet just so that they but I certainly have lots of videos of little hands playing with robots and perfect. things like that that's perfect <laughs> oh my gosh yes please <laughs> I'll definitely share that in the show notes oh, wow um so how did how did this all come about what what led you down this path that's actually one of the biggest questions that whenever somebody does something really really cool and for those of us that have been sitting in our cubicles and our boring jobs who think, well, this is what I have to do to be responsible. Um, um, are there other options in life and other paths? Like what led you down your path and made you what you are today? I, I was one of those people too. I mean, I, I had a, um, get this, I was a fiscal compliance and budget monitor, something wow. like that. So working in a city and I, <laughs> You know, I, I loved my colleagues. I didn't love my work. Yeah. I wasn't a person who liked, um, I like numbers, but I'm a big picture kind of person. And obviously you can tell by my, uh, by your electric yeah. hair and my bright <laughs> use of pink hair that I've, I've got an edgy side. Mm -hmm, so exactly. I wanted the freedom to, to wear different colored hair, mm -hmm. do my thing and, and lead a more creative for me, just a little bit more creative path. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I was that guy. And what, what I did was I had a side of the desk project. Mm -hmm. So I compromised with my city employer that I wanted to be able to volunteer and, and take days off. I wouldn't get paid. It was, mm -hmm. it was unpaid leave um, once a month to go into a community to work with them in disasters. Wow. Um, and yeah, for me, that was my, my passion is emergencies. And I like um, being with communities during that time mm -hmm. and being a part of their process. And so I just found a way to make that my side job. Actually, my, my it's really my volunteer mm -hmm. job at the yeah. time. And slowly but surely, um, that became more of my full-time job. And then suddenly, I wanted to just do that. And that's when I got the courage to just jump ship. Jump ship. Absolutely. And, and and did you have technology as a background? Were you already kind of delving into that world? Um, I'm I'm crazily not I am not I have no education in technology. I have no background in it. Um, I just loved it. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because um, I think a lot of people get hung up on and it's good always to if you can go and, and get a degree in something great. And I say more power to mm -hmm. you. But um, but I never 
got I, myself, I never led myself down a technology background. And then in my, I think my late twenties, um, it just blossomed. Mm-hmm. I, I realized how much I had a knack for it. And so I'm completely on the education level. I have no diplomas or degrees in any education and technology, yeah. um, or any of the creative stuff we do, but I think life experience, mm-hmm. um, outweighed that. And now it's, now it's what I do. You know what? I think a lot of times I know for myself, it, one of the hardest things is giving yourself credit because nobody's going to roll out the red carpet for you to go follow a dream like this, to follow an urge. Um, it just seems hard. Having that conversation with your boss sounds really scary. Um, and also you could also be tell- telling yourself how uneducated you are, that kind of thing. But you actually had the courage to s- just say, I'm going to do it anyway. And look where you are now. And wow, that for for what honestly for what I think the playgrounding podcast is about that is one of the most inspiring stories I've heard in a long time um thank you <laughs> um is there do you think there's a way that you kind of use a playful attitude in your work maybe a playful attitude in what brought you to where you are maybe helped you make those decisions all the time all the time I <laughs> I think um in general, I, I, I think I, I tend to be a little bit eccentric, and I think all of us are. Mm-hmm. We all have our little eccentricities and things we're interested in. Mm-hmm. And the best thing, best guidance I ever got in my life was something that just came from inside me, and it was just a, a gut feeling about about just I want to do this, and I want to have fun, and I want to go out, and, and I want to play. Mm-hmm. And really, I don't. A lot of people see disasters and emergencies and crisis as as a really scary, unhappy time. Mm-hmm. And um, I see it as an opportunity for people to blossom, mm-hmm. for heroes to rise from the rank where they hadn't ever thought they could, mm-hmm. and for courage to take over and overcome a community yep. um, to the point where they they do a rebuild together. And so. I, I see that as an area of play because it gives people space mm-hmm. to get outside of what they are their day-to-day is and their comfort zone. And what I think is really neat about that is um, besides myself having the opportunity and my team to get really creative in emergencies, mm-hmm. um, we see a lot of survivors go on to follow a vision or a path forward that they never even imagined that they could do. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the coolest thing. So so we get to play and then we amplify the play by letting these other folks, uh, I shouldn't say we're letting them, they're really letting themselves um, go out and follow their passion. Wow. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine having been, you know, like for instance, I was in New York City, I just happened to choose that particular time in, in the world stage to be in New York City on 9-11 and just watch people in my life um, transform themselves to adapt to this new very disrupted world and people who are just there for acting school were suddenly dangling down into crevices trying to find people and everyone's identities kind of started shifting and people started the ones who needed to go home went home the ones who determined to stay stayed I tried I stayed for as long as I could and um and it feels kind of scary like in times like that I well and that's kind of an extreme example um but like, do you have any examples of maybe ways you've seen people transformed um, where they're kind of called upon to react but are able to embrace something beautiful in the end? Yeah, um, all the time, all the time. Uh, there's so many. Um, let's, let me think <laughs> here. Uh, well, maybe I give you, I'll give you a, a couple okay. options. 
Um, so, so there's a, there's a guy named Greg who, who survived, uh, two tornadoes striking his house. And now he's, I call him tornado Greg. I'm happy to talk about him. He, he has an interesting background on his ideas behind wind turbine turbines and just, uh, changing the flow and direction before a storm Mm -hmm. even strikes preempting tornadoes. So that's Mm -hmm. one option. We can talk about tornado Greg. Uh, we could also talk about, um, there's an incredible group that created that platform in Calgary um, after the floods. They created this notification mm-hmm. system, and uh, that's not how they started. They were a bunch of guys working in improvisation really? and doing yeah, doing oh acting. And now they run a technology startup. Or I'll give you <laughs> one more. Um, there's a there's a group uh, out of mm-hmm. of New York um, that we've also worked with after Hurricane Sandy, and they put on an amazing survivor storytelling series which they still do a lot of survivor Mm -hmm. stories um and transform this abandoned firehouse station in far rockaway into a beautiful community center where now survivors come to tell their stories which story would you like i'm really fascinated (laughs) because i love to hear an individual person we can relate to like in the idea of a greg like tell me more about greg so Greg is an interesting guy, um, has a military background, works in the public health field. Um, he's doing work right now focusing in, with dialysis patients. But, um, but Greg lived mm-hmm. in Oklahoma and experienced two different mm-hmm. uh, tornadoes. One was more Oklahoma tornadoes. Um, and I think that was in 2013. Uh, and I can't remember the other tornado, uh, that it was just before that, but either way, both, um, times, both episodes, his house was hit by a tornado. I mean, how many times in your life has your house been hit by a tornado? Zero, California girl. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But still, twice. So, and I'm from Wisconsin. Yeah. But twice is a lot, right? Once is enough for somebody to say, but no, this is twice. So Greg has been thinking, he's he's still in the side of the desk mm-hmm. uh, project, but he was, he's been surmising ideas on how he could transform um, some of his ideas on just wind rotation and the mitigation before it actually mm-hmm. turns into a funnel cloud. And um, and he keeps, uh, he's been pinging me a little bit about um, some ideas, but my hope is Greg is now safely living uh, in the mountains of, of Colorado. <laughs> but but, um, but I hope that Greg continues on with his project because just like so many folks, uh, this becomes a passion because it it hurt them mm-hmm. it hit them personally. Um, they have a lot of empathy for survivors, in his case, mm-hmm. tornado survivors. He understands what it's like to try and pick yourself up after that. And so he's really starting to think through the steps of how could I actually make it so someone doesn't ever have to experience it, let alone twice yeah, experience a tornado mm, striking wow. your home. Well, it's it's so fascinating. And then in knowing that this other company uh, that kind of transformed what it, it was doing, it tra- disaster really does transform us. And and it makes me think of an experiment that I heard about from kind of this godfather of play, Stuart Brown. Uh, he talks about it in his TED Talk that little baby rats or mice, I think it was whatever they were, they had rodents, um, they were kept from playing. They were not allowed to play in their cages. Um, there was another little group of little rats that were allowed to play. And so these two groups were tested when presented with a cat-soaked collar. I'm not sure what that, what it was soaked with, but you can, one can imagine. Um, the rats who played encountered the disaster of an impending cat uh, 
and they actually had strategies. They came out of their nests. They 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 came out to figure it out to do something about it. Wow. The rats that were not allowed to play stayed hidden and probably would have in the wild just perished, you know, from just immobile being immobile and being terrified and not doing anything to help themselves. And I've learned more about play and how important it is for just us to be able to be resilient in moments like this. And I don't know. I mean, are you finding that kind of thing as you go move through these times? Yes. Um, and the whole, I love that story because it really, um, it inspires me to remember that if we empower people through play, um, mm -hmm. the world's your oyster. You, you literally can do a lot of things if you're given mm -hmm. the tool of play. And the, for the rats who did have the opportunity to, to work together, to play, to en enjoy, um, it probably was a much more calm and focused experience when they had the collar um, exposed to the collar. They thought this through, they problem solved. And I think that's important, again, analogizing it to emergencies. If we don't learn to empower communities and individuals and neighbors and mm -hmm. citizens individually to play and to be creative and to think outside of the box, then we are at a disadvantage when, mm -hmm. if you're a California girl, yep. when an earthquake strikes like San Andreas or yes. one of the many other fault lines. Um, so I 100% agree. And it also reminds me that um, when I was, mm. um, I worked at FEMA for a bit as their chief innovation advisor. And I remember it was so important because um, at the time I was in the federal government to create the space for other people to play. So the other lesson is if if you get to be the guy playing, awesome. But also if you have the opportunity and the the authority to allow others to play in a space, just by creating that space to allow people to, to do really incredible things will give them that opportunity to save lives. Wow, wow. And and your your story as well, having experienced the school shooting, but then years later, you know, you just you just made that decision and you you did what you wanted to do and what you know that's pretty amazing in and of itself um, are there any other aspects to this that maybe i missed that you know that you want to share like maybe projects you're working on now new things that are coming up yeah we um we have some really interesting stuff coming up um one is we're actually going to the american Media meteorological society mm -hmm. their big annual meeting to do a keynote yes Super honored because um, these are, you know, scientists and meteorologists, folks who just work in weather related mm -hmm. incidents, um, but really know their mm -hmm. stuff. And so um, it's going to be fun to be on stage. But the neat thing about it is we came together again. It's all about empowering and giving people a choice mm -hmm. to play. Um, and we're um, although I'm going to be doing the keynote, we compiled these incredible stories from literally all over the world of survivors and responders who have done incredible work, like their experience of surviving the mm -hmm. disaster or rescuing in a disaster, and some of the lessons that came out of that. And what's cool about that is storytelling is a way, it's, a, it's an Absolutely. art form of play. It allows somebody to take, uh, it could be imaginary, in this case, these are real stories, um, but take their scenario and own it and be empowered to tell it. So the neat thing is we're going to tell the tales of these survivors and responders in front of thousands of amazing meteorologists wow. that's great about that. that's great wow it i and as we draw to a close it's just my mind is just being drawn so much to the the intersection between how we respond 
in times of disaster and the practice we get from unstructured moments of just allowing ourselves to imagine and innovate and and just dream up ideas yeah it's yeah it's not something you really think about very often it's not a connection that i really make or you want to make you don't want to think about these things happening but this is really exciting work and is your uh, i know you had your robot petting zoo out for everyone to see at South by Southwest. Is that something that comes together every once in a while or was that a one-time kind of thing? We, we love to get the bots together. I mean, <laughs> it's the roboticists and the robots. Everybody likes to play. So mm-hmm. yeah, no, we, um, we definitely get out uh, and we certainly, we do it for good. It's all social good. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll have a couple sessions. If folks love to, to come out and bring their robots, all, they're always welcome to contact me and tell me about the latest and greatest and see if I can plug them into something fun. That's great. But, um, but to tie something in that, uh, Kara, that you brought up in the beginning, that is um, just an interesting loop back to play and I was telling you about that town of High River mm-hmm. that um, that we visited this past fall we put on that game where the mayor was hiding in the shack and we used technology to try and stress test it and mm-hmm. see if, if everything could work together yeah. uh, well the neat thing is the town invited us back um, which I'm really excited about in the spring Yes, and they are they're just um, upping the ante on the play element uh, which is really fun. So we will, um, although the last one was the missing mayor, that was the simulation, (laughs) this time the towns come together and they're willing to face um, a larger incident than 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 even a missing mayor and so we will be (laughs) we will be actually running um, a huge simulation where if the Cascadia fault line earthquake Mm -hmm. happens how does the town, being more in the western part of Canada, yeah. help respond to evacuees from the earthquakes on the west coast? And so they're taking a huge leap in an empowered direction to simulate a game that's a little bit closer to real life. Wow. And um, talk about a community that's coming together for a really cool cause, but playing, not just playing to win, but playing to collaborate, knowing that they're going to be supporting if that quake decides to strike. Wow. You know, I wish we could get something like that going out here. <laughs> I definitely would need something yeah. like that. Wow, that's amazing. Well, this this whole conversation just moves me in so many directions. I'm so excited to hear all about this and so excited to have met you. Kara, thank you. And I, I really do like the movement of what you're doing with play. I think it's meaningful. And I do think that that's what influences not just the individual, but it creates the movement and the momentum for thousands, and then it's millions, and then it's a global mm-hmm. trend. So keep up the great work with um, empowering people Thank to play. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being on. Thank you, Kara. Thanks once again for joining us. Visit playgrounding.com slash 25 for Desi's full bio and links to Field Innovation Team's website and Facebook page. You'll also see pictures of those tiny hands playing with robots. How can you resist? I'll see you next week.